Hi, this is Tim Reister of B2B Decision Labs, and you're listening to SaaS Holes. Welcome to SaaS Holes, a show dedicated to issues within software as a service industry. We are Revenue Ops with a Edge, Jamie, Jason, KG, and Justin have a combined 100 years of making interesting decisions. Please subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You know, so I said, Justin, welcome aboard, Justin. Nice to be here, Pete. Thanks for having me. Oh, when you say Sassol, I mean, it just rolls off the tongue. Justin Roth, Sassol. I was Love thinking it. during the week, you need a name for your subscribers. I was thinking Sassholisters or maybe Sasshooligans. Sasshooligans? Sasshooligans? For, for, I like the Sasshooligans. For our uh, fans across the pond, of course. Isn't that what uh, the insane clown posse people are? The sa- uh, hooligans? Yeah. Good. Soccer. That's a good crew for us to align with. Soccer hooligans. Yeah, it fits. <laughs> J- Jamie, the more you talk, the more I got to edit. Today, our guest <laughs> is Tim Reister. <laughs> He's part of Corporate Visions. Tim helps companies develop, deploy, and deliver customer conversations that win. Sassol listeners should work with Corporate Visions when you want to develop more compelling messages that break through the status quo and differentiate from your competitors. Deploy those messages in powerful self-service and sales-directed customer conversation tools that are more remarkable and memorable than everyone else's content. And finally, enable your salespeople to deliver this content with skills training for creating, elevating, capturing, and expanding value in your customer conversation. But before we get to Tim, get a sponsor for the show. NeuroNoodle, hey parents and athletes, get a doodle of their noodle, which is a brain map before the season starts so you have a baseline to compare it to. You get a physical every year, right? We'll get a brain checkup before the season starts. Schedule an appointment now at neuronoodle.com. It takes only 20 minutes to get the data you need to ensure the quality of your athlete's future life. KG? <laughs> yes, Pete. <laughs> Darny? Yeah, Pete. Why didn't you use uh, KG's joke? We're, we are debating whether to continue the jokes. I think we're going to put a poll after this episode. Do we keep the jokes? Yes or no? But and Justin, control it and say, say what about jokes, Justin? <laughs> See, this, we, we finally have somebody smart on the podcast, for God's sakes. Well, with Justin, too, now the, the, our IQ has gone up, like, exponentially. Oh, no. well, my, my question was, why does it have to be a dad joke? Why can't it be oh, like a proper yeah. joke? And by proper, I mean filthy. Yeah, exactly. Lauren Bailey. Have a filthy joke one time. It was a little too filthy. Yeah, too filthy for Jamie, but I thought it was yeah. awesome. I like KG's a- joke, which was, uh, what, what was your joke again? Why did, what did Chris Rock wake up with? Fresh Prince? <laughs> <laughs> I can't even tell the joke. Move on. Move on. Fre- Fresh Prince, whatever. But yes. anyways, did you know in King Arthur's time, one of the knights collected taxes? His no. His name was... His name was Surcharge. Leave us some comments in our blog at sassholes.net. See, that could get a vote to cancel the. the yeah, that jokes. would easily get a vote to cancel. Yeah, yeah. I think so. KG, you got any shout outs? I do have some shout outs. Oh, um, do you hear that? Well, hold on. Do you hear that typing? Yeah, click, 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 click. It's Jamie. Way to go. Right. Way to show up, Jamie. Yeah, right. No problem. Oh, Congratulations to Blake Crossley he, uh, uh, for being 10 years. At ZipRecruiter, if you do the math, he was one of the really original people there. Congratulations, Blake. Happy birthday to my very first sales manager ever. His name is Guy Klingler. What a great guy. And congratulations to Beck Holland. Still would love to get her on the show. 
uh, for starting as an additional position as uh, advisory board member at User Gems. So that's all she wrote. She's got too much crud for us. Carney, uh, you done typing? You want to add some yeah, more I'm people? I'm done typing. It's, it's, Cindy Tackett promoted SVP of marketing at Flexera. Give her a shout out. She's been there for like, I don't know, a gazillion years. Chad Herrick actually just got noticed uh, this week that he well, they finally made an official decision and promoted him to my old role as global revenue operations at Flexera. And Max Morris, who used to work for me, um, just is going to start in a couple days here at People AI as a BDR at People AI. He's a good kid out of Marquette. I know, Tim, you live near Milwaukee, so I know you're a UW-Milwaukee guy, but I'm sure you have a heart. A little bit of a heart for um, Marquette basketball, basketball teams that are good. Yeah, I have a heart for people. That well, they haven't been good until this year. They're a little bit better, but hopefully we right. get back to prominence. Good luck walking in that neighborhood. All right. Uh, you got any more Flexera love, uh, Carney? Got anybody no, else from there? Okay. All right. Hey, Matt Myers, three years at Grubhub. Brendan Styler, five years at LinkedIn. Ellie Lagore, starting new position as regional vice president of sales at Salesforce. Ryan Knott, six years at ADP, and Matt O'Grady, two years at DocuSign. Congrats all. See, that's the only way we get listeners if we tag all those people. So, KG, how do you know Tim? This is literally the first time that I've ever met uh, Tim, so to speak, face-to-face, but I um, have seen some of his content published through the American Association of Inside Sales Professionals, an organization that I'm a big fan of and have been a part of for 10 plus years. And uh, But then when I dug deeper into, uh, into Tim's background, uh, coming from college background of aerospace engineering, that's me, uh, I noticed that he was you know, it's decision science, applying decision science to customer conversations. And I thought, Finally, somebody's going to treat sales like science and not art, and uh, and I'm like, we we got to get him onto the sassels, and I'm really pleased also to have Justin on as well to see these two uh, duke it out. But uh, Tim, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. No, oh, that's awesome, and and thanks for that intro. I, I think the decision science part. Uh, I like to say I'm I'm not an actual scientist, but I play one on podcasts and stages and in in uh, books and all kinds of things. But we do work with actual scientists who I will represent today. <laughs> is decision science the same as game theory? Um, game theory is is a piece of it. So decision science is sort of the triangulation of behavioral economics, social psychology, and cognitive neuroscientists science. And so we look at you know, functional MRI and EEG and the neuroscience side. And then we'll look at uh, the different studies that are done in the behavioral and social sciences and then bring them into B2B and actually do studies there. Because when I look at the studies that are out there that are published and they're good stuff, they've been conducted on, on uh, grad students, convicts and gamblers. So, you know, at some point we want, I mean, we may think our B2B customers are all those things, but the reality is we want to apply these in a B2B setting. So that's what we do. Wow. So you, you get any EEGs, QEEGs, all that, Tim? Or? Yeah, we're, we're doing EEG, like our brain lab. So Dr. Carmen Simon is a double PhD cognitive neuroscientist. And recently, to uh, KG's point, we were at the AISP and we, we allowed attendees to come in and strap in the gear. So EEG caps, eye tracking, galvanic skin response, ECG, 
facial coding. And we're studying how people are right now, uh, the study's funded by Zoom. We're looking at how people react to different things going on in Zoom, uh, different backgrounds that people may choose, uh, all the way to the presentation itself and the delivery of that presentation and the impact it has on people. So, I, you know, it's decision science. Uh, so when I think of sales as a science, we're actually looking at, at studying the science of the buyer's brain, how they frame value, how they make choices, and, and then informing the salesperson how they can affect that. Um, we don't study sellers' brains right now, but that's a, that's a future. Why, um, do you, uh, <laughs> why do you need to study the brain to answer that question? I mean, if you think of a human as a black box, what you need to know is the inputs and the outputs, right? Why do you need to be concerned with the internal machinations? Well, if you know, like, like, here's the best practice of a seller who seems to get really good outcomes, and you don't know why that happened, and then you try to imitate that, then you, you could just suck. You can like, you know, if somebody says you should challenge your customer and then you just go out and, and be a sasshole, uh, that doesn't really cut it, right? You, once you know what, why, like if you know why people live in status quo and you know the causes of status quo, yeah. you can defeat the status, status quo on purpose and, and, um, and, and persuade with purpose. And the brain scans to- tell you why? I would have well, thought you'd have to interview the person to find out why. Yeah, in, people lie. Um, that's oh, that, a problem. That's right? <laughs> it, it's uh, scientists call this declared preference versus revealed preference. So mm. surveys, surveys is not science. Surveys ask you and you give an opinion as you. Well, try it's, to an, it's an input. It's evidence, right? Yeah. But yeah. I would tell you that the behavioral economists would say that declared preference is how we convince ourselves we do something. Sure. Revealed preference is how we actually do it. And the brain science gets to a subconscious level to see motivation and attention and working memory. And, and you can you know, coalesce some of those things into trust uh, because we can look at, at people who are withdrawing or people who are approaching with their brain. And that's only one. So you can kind of triangulate on the motivation. Right. Exactly. At a subconscious okay. level that they can't lie about when they take a survey in order to make themselves feel better. Well, I think, about isn't it like <laughs> ethos, logos, pathos? I mean, we control ethos and logos the pathos is what we're trying to figure out the, the mindset of the other person that you're talking to in order to influence them right that, i mean that makes sense well yeah the the thing about the, the human brain is is the the decision to change takes place in what daniel kahneman the famous uh nobel prize winner said is system one <clears throat> the emotional intuitive part of the brain is the is the location of the decision for change but that part of the brain does not have the capacity for language the part of the brain that has the capacity for language is the rational, logical part of the brain. So when you ask the brain, what's it going to take for you to make a decision, they will tell you rational, logical answers. And then you, you feed that and you don't get a decision. You're like, what just happened? I gave you everything you said. Well, the problem is that part of the brain justifies the decision. It validates the decision. It, it tries to convince itself it made a good decision. But the decision happened in a part of the brain that uh, is where emotional, intuitive, and survival mechanisms live. And you have to approach that, knowing how to approach that appropriately so that you can actually get the decision. And then you, you must feed the rational brain with the justification it needs later. If I'm a copywriter, which I'm not, but I used to be at the beginning of my career, and I know that putting the words breakthrough technology in headline you know, increases response, um, what's the utility in me understanding why exactly those words generate that response? How do I benefit as opposed to simply observing the correlation? 
um, because you may start coming up with other phrases that you think sound like breakthrough uh, and, okay. and you start using them and they don't work as well. And you're like, what really happened here? And normally you have to have more than a, a, a subject line conversation with a customer. So there's a very deliberate choreography to help somebody change their mind. The first thing is people hate uncertainty, but you have to introduce uncertainty for anybody to be persuadable. And so you have to understand that people like to keep their current preferences stable, but your job is to destabilize their current preferences. But once you're done with that, you have to understand that people think their status quo is free because it's just part of their operating procedure. And you have to show them that, no, there's a loss or a cost associated with your current status quo because you just project all of the cost on the change. We have to help you see there's a cost of staying the same. And there's this choreography to take down each of the causes of status quo bias, or in other words, I like to say the four reasons people won't change their mind. And if you don't know what the four reasons they're, they won't change your mind, how do you know how to continue the dialogue past breakthrough technology? From a company perspective, they bring you in and you do your sample testing of people on, on their, because I imagine you can't have everyone in the entire company strapped to these. Uh, and you come up with a game plan and said, this is how or why we think that, that these people are so successful. Do companies, how do they use that to replicate? Is it hiring uh, based on certain personality traits or is it how they express no, no matter what the personality traits or is it a mixture of both or how do they transform their entire business to sort of align with all your findings? So the brains we're studying are actually buyers brains. So we're doing studies in the market on B2B buyers in in categories or across categories, certain types of solution decisions. So we're trying to understand what kind of message. So the actual message content, the visuals, the use of the visuals, we'll study things right down to do, how do animations or annotations on top of a visual add value, control, focus, and cause better memory. You know, how do we create more memorable presentations? We'll study the delivery and engagement of, of um, how it's received on the buyer side. So we do generalized B2B industry studies that we then, um, after we vet those, we often then take them into a field trial where we take an inside sales. This is why we're connected to inside sales is you put somebody in a sales engagement tool and run a cadence and you try different touch patterns. You try different messages. You try different content assets, uh, personal video versus infographics or some other asset uh, just a voicemail versus uh, an offer of an asset that allows somebody maybe to self-study versus take your meeting right away. And we go in and test those. And then we test what's in those assets or what's in that presentation. So it's all about how does the buyer respond and receive this? And then we look at their memory a few days later to see what they do recall and how accurately and specifically they recall it. And then ideally in the field trials, we will follow that from hand raiser to meeting to pipeline to close. We come up with general industry insights that say, this is a better way to do it. And then some of our clients who we then go in and build that kind of message for them, mm. build those visuals for them, teach their sellers the skills, build those cadences out and make them smart, not just dumb cadences. And then we'll, we'll run client-specific trials after that to tweak it for them. But we're doing industry-wide research to create findings that provide frameworks and templates and tools that either you can apply or we can help you apply. I spent eight years at ZipRecruiter and 
talk about a data-driven organization that I loved being a part of. And this was a product and marketing team that was dealing with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of data points on a monthly basis. And the words stat sig was always on our minds. Where I became particularly challenged as a sales leader was even though I had 550 salespeople, we could never run true A-B tests and get to any sort of stat sig statistical significance. How can you get to uh, statistical significance with likely not enough buyers that are, you know, you're running these cadences and you change a few things. You've got to have thousands of touch points to figure out if changing from video to an animation uh, makes sense. I would think. Yeah. Dot, so dot, the, dot. <laughs> it's interesting. Like the, the scientists that we work, so we work with some academic people who know how to set up academically rigorous tests and validate these things. There, there, there's an interesting move, like statistical significance is, is still interesting, but they're, now they're looking for like contrast. Like, can you see consistently higher performing approaches in some sort of meaningful contrast? Like, is it similar or is there a difference? And one approach is always consistently uh, producing a better result, even if you're like, well, that wasn't, the volume wasn't there for statistical significance, but the consistency was there and the contrast between the two was, was remarkable. But if you um, don't have statistical significance, how do you know you're not mistaking the noise for the signal? That's right. The academicians we're working with now are saying, this is actually a shift going on in academia right now, as they are, think, they are being able to demonstrate that this contrast size is actually becoming more predictive and statistical significance is saying that this happens, but it doesn't give you a great sense of with what magnitude and... Um, and so how do you know and, that's not a get a jail free card for social scientists? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Is this no, why we yeah. had Justin come on as a guest host or what? <laughs> right. That's when I say... Actually, I'm, yes. I, I, I represent social scientists. I'm not a social scientist. We're, we're looking at the, the, the buyers, but... Has anybody looked at the sellers where think of uh, 10, 20 years from now, instead of, uh, you know, remember the old school wonder licks? Well, they're still around. You know, you would take these as assessment tests before you bring somebody on. Well, you, you would get a baseline of the successful reps and you would measure the people coming into that baseline of the people that come that come in. Is it possible to get a QEG, collect a database of the, the reps that are successful at the company? and train through neurofeedback or whatever against that database on the reps that are successful and clone more successful reps? You think that's what the future looks like? You know, it sure could. I'm seeing technologies right now. One just launched that actually does real-time cue studies of a meeting like this and, mm -hmm. and, and is looking at the seller and the buyer and able to give you coaching and feedback on what it appears like the response behind the responses. The thing I'm looking at is, is that then coachable or teachable? Are you, are you able to then say, then here's what you should do different. And you, you would know you'd get a different or better result from that. So there's some early stage, I think, work on the seller side of this, but uh, that's not where we've spent our time because this is the thing. When you tell sellers, there's, there's some losing profiles and they perform like this, but here's the winning profile. And the way we're going to teach you is all of you who are losers, 
you should imitate the winner. You just don't get a great response from sellers in an environment like that. So we're like, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give you a peek inside your buyer's brain. You know, use your gift set, use your talents. We all know that uh, forcing someone to mimic or ape someone else is not necessarily a good thing. So that's why we've turned our attention to the buyer. Tim, Tim, I apologize. And speaking of apologies, can you tell us about the... uh... Apology framework. Yeah, yeah. What is that? Well, it's it's interesting. We had done some studies in terms of how to, let's say, provoke and create uncertainty and disrupt the status quo bias to acquire new business. We then did some studies that prove that if you are the status quo bias, you're the incumbent. You actually have to deliberately do some things to reinforce and remind them of why they're committed to you before you sell them something new. And so we were out extolling the virtues of these two studies, the acquisition motion versus the expansion motion. And um, I was uh, at a company launch with a telecommunications firm. And they said, you know, those studies are all awesome, but they all seem predicated on the fact that maybe you have a positive um, interaction with your customers. We have a lot of problems with our customers. Like, I'm not sure they're ready for what you just said, because there's, there's a barrier there. And I said, well, you're a telecommunications company, right? And they said, yeah, yeah. And I said, nobody likes their telecommunication company. Don't worry about it. And they didn't smile. They didn't laugh. They didn't think that was funny. So we're like, okay, maybe we should do. And two of our professors were there, um, Zach Tormala at Stanford and Nick Lee out of Warwick. And they both said, oh, there's a whole space called apology science, which apparently started somewhere in around the 90s during the Clinton era. But there's a whole study made of, and most of the study on apologies has been done and a consumer or celebrity or some other type of environment. But there's starting to emerge some studies in the area of B2B that shows the right apology can create something that people know as the service recovery paradox. If you handle a problem well and you document that well, you can, you can create more loyalty, satisfaction, and ongoing business than if you never had a problem in the first place. This has actually now been studied in, in B2B work. So There's like, a, visual, a visual construct that you've got for this, right? Yeah. So it, uh, imagine the idea that uh, you're, you, you can have positive vibes up and to the right if you don't have a problem. If you have a problem, it takes a dip, but you can slingshot up and above the, the no problem scenario by solving an acute problem well. It's kind of like you can be forgotten if you just stay there and do yeoman's work and people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess they're fine. But you can be remembered if you handle and uh, solve for a problem really well. And you're seeing the picture here that shows that difference. And what they were able to show is that you have to solve the problem and you have to do it with reasonable speed. But the thing that really causes the service recovery paradox is the documented apology, the thing that walks the halls on your behalf and the thing that hangs around long after the event is over. So this this idea of documenting a, a formal apology in a way in a B2B setting that would touch multiple stakeholders is something we started to investigate. Are you saying the apology on this visual occurs at the service recovery arrow? Uh, no, the apology is right. Is as you're as you're troughing here, um, you fix the problem with some level of speed. These are like assumptions. You got to fix it, and you got to do it in a reasonable amount of time. But then you you document the apology. And those three together, but the reference point they said that distinguishes this is that there was a formal documented, like everybody can see it and remind themselves of your good work, uh, apology that carries you through on the other side. And so where in the in this uh, over time here, I love the visual of this, 
the apology comes be after the service failure before the trough it comes after you fix the problem what did the what did the data suggest when the best time to issue that apology because you know just you mentioned telecommunication companies and it's like hmm. yes we're sorry you know sir that you have you know spectrum has an outage today it will be six weeks before we get your service technician out to your house. And you're like, go fuck yourself. Like, you know, like really like you, you had got my, my loyalty, but if they, you know, fix it and they document it. And then like, if somebody even called and said, Hey, you know, we're really sorry. We'd love to give you two months off or a month off or something like that. After the fact, I'd be like, wow, I don't think I would have expected that from a telco company to like, I don't think I would have expected that kind of apology. So, so wh where does that apology exist? And tell me more about how the documentation ex uh, 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 manifests itself. Yeah. So the apology, and when we tested it, we tested it as you, this is the email you received from the company. So what do you first do is you put people in a scenario. So this is a mm -hmm. simulation to be, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's a simulation that you put people in, you explain the problem. Uh, this system went down right during your benefits enrollment period. And now everybody in the organization is upset and they're concerned about employee satisfaction and frustration. And you're, you're in charge of that software. And now your vendor is coming back to, to fix it. Uh, and and apologize. And what we do is we then ask everybody on a scale of one to 10, like, how how pissed would you be about this in your company? Mm -hmm. How how mad would you be? And then anybody who wasn't a nine or a 10 angry, they didn't even get to be in the study. So we want to take just the really, really angry people who could like had a good imagination and put themselves in that scenario. And, and then they got divided into um, five different test conditions because there are there are five different elements of a good apology that we could find over 30 years of research. So we found these different elements. And what we found is nobody had ever tested them like in a framework. And what, so what we did is we just sort of rearranged them in logical ways. So we created the same content for each of the elements. And then we just rearranged them so that they could work regardless of they would flow regardless of the order you put them in. And, and then we said, and here's the apology. And the, the thing you have to know is it, 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 we get a moment, right? So in the simulation, what we said is the company has fixed the problem and here's their apology. Um, so that's what we tested. Um, what I'm going to share with you about the results, I think what was interesting is this idea um, that, uh, that an apology, uh, and this goes back to the question about statistical significance, that there was one order, one particular order that in every question we ask, in every way we ask it, and at the intense, like on a scale of one to 10, how willing to do this would you be after listening to this? Um, one framework continually popped to the top while others were bouncing around in the results. And, and some of the obvious ones were like tanking um, <clears throat> as you went on. It was surprising to us that there would be one consistent winner on every single question that we ask. And, and that's what I mean by sort of consistency and seeing the contrast and effect size and then seeing a consistent response that says, you know what, I, I all bets, if I had to place a bet, I'd choose that one. I'd use that one, you know, and, and stat sig is interesting, but I think I got, I got some directional intelligence that seems pretty valid. And if I'm, I'm going to, it's better than me just guessing which one. The research arm of corporate visions is called B2B Decision Labs. And we present these frameworks and they become part of our books. They become part of our, our keynotes and conversations in the marketplace. And if people say, yeah, that's great. I'd really love some help constructing that and then rolling that out. 
then they call the company in. But mm. we, we, we do like to spread uh, the goodness as wide as we can with this. Um, and so in the framework, the most surprising thing is um, that the actual apology, the expression of regret, I'm really sorry, uh, comes at the end. And now don't get me wrong. If, if you're in the heat of the moment and somebody says, my phone line's down, I'm sorry to hear that is a really good way to start. But in the apology, the documented apology, the best open is to um, document the offer of uh, repair. And what that, the science behind that is that you have to show them how you're going to restore their perception of lost value. They're not even, they don't, you know, the sorry doesn't matter until you've given them some indication that you can have not only fixed the problem, but you're restoring their perception of lost value. It gets into justice theory and fairness. That turned out to be consistently like that opening, the offer of repair, which documented how we're going to restore the perception of lost value, meaning, hey, um, this was down for two weeks, uh, right during your enrollment period. That's really an important time. And so what we're going to do is give you two months uh, free uh, to, and we're going to provide this team mm. and add this redundancy. Like you put in the, like, this is how you're going to restore the value. And then you're going to make sure that this doesn't happen again, all before you say, and we're truly sorry. It ever that makes sense. If I dented your car with a shopping trolley and I paid to have it fixed, and then I gave you a couple of hundred bucks for the nuisance I don't actually need to apologize because the apology was implicit in my actions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, actions spoke louder than words in that case. So it appears that when we would move the apology to the front and then stagger the offer of repair and the explanation of the problem and the, and the description of the fix in different orders. Yeah. People like the difference, the contrast size in every question that we ask and the questions that we ask, I have the list here is, how likely are you to buy more from this supplier? How likely are you to recommend this supplier? How confident are you that they fully address the incident? How willing are you to entertain competitive discussions now that this happened? And we ask a, a, about 10 questions and then say on a scale of one to 10, answer those questions. And then we just saw this remarkable difference between the one order versus the other. So there was no even clear second place. They bounced around on each of those questions. Um, and by the end, there was a clear last place and it was the one that opened with this. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, so it turns out that really takes people off to hear that before they've heard the other things. Can you go through the five elements of the apology? Yeah. So the first is the first move is the offer of repair. That's that part of restoring perceived loss value. The next move is then the acknowledgement of responsibility. Even if it was your supplier, even if it was your distributor, you take responsibility. The next move then is... <laughs> It's called the Declaration of, of, of Repentance. Uh, we didn't make these words up. This is this, we found these in the literature, and now we were just ordering them. And that's more of the, uh, we're, we're putting all these things in place to make sure that never happens again, to the best of our ability. And then, then the explanation of the problem. So what really happened? If we move the explanation of the problem up early, it seems like people are like, that feels like- Evasion. Yeah, evasion finger pointing, right? And hey, it was really bad. You know, there was, we had no control over this, our suppliers, you know? So you don't explain the problem until the fourth bubble. So offer of repair, acknowledge responsibility, declaration of repentance, and, uh, and then the explanation of the problem, and then the expression of regret. Those are the five. And that's the choreography that- Apologize at the end. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Here, for, 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 for the guys that are married out there, and uh, I'm sure <laughs> I knew it would go there. <laughs> uh, 
I forgot my wife's anniversary. How does this all play? How do I do that? How do I use these five steps in real real world? I never have, so I think the other guy should take a shot at this. <laughs> <laughs> what we say about any of this is it's behavioral science. We're just making behavioral science relevant to B2B buying and selling. But the reality is you, 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 you can learn things. I always say that can help you with your relationship with your significant others and your children. And that's just a bonus on all this. Uh, because selling is change management. And so we look more at change management principles and, and, and things like that than we do like certain seller type behaviors mm-hmm. um, and reframe the whole mindset of the role of the seller anymore. Uh, you've published some information on how reps can make their virtual presentations more memorable and motivating. The, the main thing that drives a decision is, is some level of precise memories. Because you present in point A, And at point B is where they make a decision and you want to drive precision memories, random memories where they don't remember which vendor said what, or just memories where they, they, they can't ascribe to you. And in their moment of decision, some very precise things. Then the question is, how do I do that deliberately in a setting where I'm the size of a postage stamp? And one of it is your, your typical slide presentation is not ready to drive memories. It's, it's, it's been designed for you to be in front of the room, the star, and a backdrop, but now it's the star, and now I'm on a screen, and your customer's on a screen, and they're expecting a lot more to happen. So the number one thing we talk about is you have to reveal the story because people read faster than you talk, they draw conclusions, and they move on, and they didn't hear anything you had to say. So the number one thing people can do is make sure your bullets animate, and animate them, bring them up as you tell your story and control people's focus and attention exactly where you're talking. I can absolutely control attention and focus by building the story. So if you have a big schematic or you even have bullets, just reveal them as you talk about them because a good story has an arc and it reveals itself. So animation, annotation, actually get good at plugging in uh, your PowerPoint into your um, laptop with a touchscreen or your iPad and, and start scrawling on there, scribbling, add some value by putting in and notating a few things that your customer says, or adding some value to what's on the slide and enhancing and flavoring the content so that you show command of it. But you also, nobody sees that, they lean into that. There's, we have found that not only attention, but memory is served by animation and annotation. And the third thing I would say is, Know your 10%, accept and humble yourself that people will forget 90% of what you have to say and identify your 10%. And what we tell people is transform your agenda slide into your 10% slide, make your agenda, the one big idea and reward you're going to get. And here are the three things you will do different and better after we're done today. And those three things get you to the big reward. And that what, what allows you then is to always use that as a you are here marker in your presentation and bring that back to recap what you said and preview what you're about to say. And if you can get six to 10 of those repetitions in any 20 minutes, you've created more precise memories for the, the big idea and the three things you wanted to get across. So know your 10%, control your 10%, repeat your 10%. And then animate and annotate. Yeah, and I think that's great. Would you say this? I say this a lot. Don't let your PowerPoints lead the discussion. Let them follow the discussion. I would say time them to the discussion is probably the better idea, right? It's like let let the story and the visual reveal itself as you tell the visuals uh, as you tell the story. So yes, so the story rules, and you tell it as you, you tell as a story, and the visuals are revealed as support to reinforce the story. Absolutely. So I was probably being too cute there. 
you guys are doing some of the testing on Zoom calls and, and looking at um, brain activity. I mean, granted, if you did the brain activity here, you would see none coming from Pete, but um, all the other ones would be firing in all cylinders. But what well, type of information have you gathered from that? Well, it's funny. In order to get a baseline, we have the subject stare at a beige wall, a plain beige wall for like 30 seconds to create the baseline. And then we watch to see how often your presentation is more boring, dull, and less interesting than a beige wall. But we're looking at all of the things. <laughs> so it, that's, it's humbling, trust me. And, and so we're looking at attention, um, cognitive load, uh, and, and all of the different aspects that EEGs can give you. The eye tracking shows you what they are or aren't paying attention to or how they are or aren't following the story as you reveal things. Um, and, and so that's how we can, uh, and then we bring those all together to say, and these are your takeaways. This is, this is what we've learned is annotation and animation controls people's focus. It gets attention, keeps attention, controls attention. The presentation should, you know, uh, go inside or, or, or go alongside the story, but then also you should probably take some of your presentation and see, is it really impactful to a beige wall? You know? How about you fucking <laughs> rehearse it? <laughs> rehearse it well that, you're, you're I'm, like uh, a I'm, beige wall Pete. i'm skeptical here we we've we've actually no. we've, we've watched yes exactly we've watched our client salespeople um uh try and have conversations with a powerpoint at their fingertips and it ends up being a very awkward conversation because the salesperson is trying they're running two games there's the actual conversation and then there's the second game where they're trying to fit the conversation to the powerpoint and it it's it comes across awkward so what we've resolved is if the salesperson is going to have a powerpoint we want them to have a well-rehearsed fluent you know eight minute briefing we call it and use it as an opener for a discussion and then put the damn powerpoint away for the discussion I, I have a theory that you could give the the salesperson a deck of supporting evidence, like a, 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 an exhibit for the jury in a trial. But I think the trick then would be to only have them flash up an exhibit if it's relevant and then put it away again. I, I, I'm very skeptical about the idea of salespeople having a conversation in conjunction with a PowerPoint. Yeah, the challenge, ideally, ideally, what you do is you have your hot open three to five minutes where you tell them something they didn't expect or didn't know about a problem or opportunity they didn't know they had. That would be ideal. And that's what we try to help companies do because status quo bias needs to be challenged out of the gate. But you got to do it in a way that makes them feel smarter, not stupid, and, and, and give them something to chew on. And what we build in then is, then now let's have a moment. Here's a couple provocative questions to ask based on what they just heard. It's a technique we call DIQ, data insight question, because we studied this. If you just ask open-ended questions, people will answer them, but they don't feel a level of pain or threat or risk versus as much as if you gave them a piece of data to anchor that, you wrapped it in an insight about how people should be thinking about this maybe differently than they are. And then now you say, how does this feel inside your organization? What are you seeing or experiencing? And we found that people's willingness to admit pain is much higher when you've anchored them on a high piece of data and given them an insight and then ask them the question as opposed to just asking the question. So there's always, um, there's always sort of a ninja opportunity uh, to amplify somebody's urgency and sense of, I need to lean into this. 
and I'm going to be more forthright with my answer so that I'm, 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 I'm more willing to admit I'm broken in a context than if you just ask me an open-ended question. And sometimes that just, the other thing is that visuals are visceral and, and in visuals, the picture superiority effects as people remember things many times more if it's attached to a visual. So, so which, side of, which side of the debate are you on? Are you saying that with these techniques, you should be able to have a conversation in conjunction with a pre-choreographed sequence or are you saying you should do the presentation and then have an open discussion? I'm saying that it's a choreographed sequence because okay. your agenda allows you time to process each of those moments, right? Here's the big idea with sort of those first three to five minutes of like, whoop, didn't see that coming. Now I'm going to walk you through three challenges that maybe you're underestimating or didn't realize the size and speed of, and we're going to engage those. So you tee that up. And then each one is a moment, like think of it as a choreography, and they're all designed to continue to reinforce a need and, and get them to express that need through. The challenge is if you as a presenter are presenting to a choreograph sequence, then you have fewer degrees of freedom than your prospect. And if you're trying to sell to a smart prospect like a banker or an investor, and you have imposed upon yourself fewer degrees of freedom than they have, then there's a very real danger. They will use their additional degrees of freedom to gain control over the conversation. You know, the promise at the beginning is really important that uh, that you got to make it interesting enough yeah. for them to want to, to suspend be, disbelief, right, to go along for the ride with you because they see something in it, right? Like, I didn't see that coming. I need to really hear. One of the things we always say is your story has to credential itself with the fact that the presenter is essentially saying, not saying this out loud, but we see more people who look like you than you do. And the one thing I know about humans, regardless of title, is they're voyeurs, they are insanely interested in what you might be seeing at hundreds of people like them. And they're just myopically focused on their day. What might I learn, right? What might I gain that I know what's going on here? It's the thing I don't know that I'm worried about. And you've seen more people look like me than I do. So I'm going to hang in there for a little while. Now you got to pay that off in each move, no doubt. But you have, um, (laughs) as a salesperson, uh, 20 questions discovery is honestly... Uh, not cutting it anymore because the expectation is I need to know that you know something I don't know pretty quickly sure. in order for me to hang around. And once you do that, though, then you're hanging around. And so that's how we're helping companies as we go. And we got we, we to call BS on your traditional value propositions and go for and help them identify and launch and introduce an unconsidered need that you found across your installed situation that this person might be surprised by. Maybe not, they didn't see it coming, but they didn't appreciate the size or the speed of it. And and then you're kind of off to the races as you now represent this knowledge bank that they just can't tap into. And, And obviously give yourself always the flexibility, like every section, it'd be great if a blank slide came up that you could scribble notes on. So what our teams are taught to do is you, you, you end that session and yeah. now the person starts talking and you start actually capturing that on that next slide. And that's how all of a sudden they can, they can correct your assumptions and you can scribble them out and write their assumptions in it. You can create an engaging dialogue with a visual if you know how to handle your visuals. So, because the other thing is if you don't have any visuals, you have to be really, your language has to be emotional. It has to be visceral. It has to create familiar metaphors and frames that people will remember and hang on to. Otherwise, it disappears like cotton candy. You said something brilliant. It went in and tasted good. And they're like, ah, what was that again? And if they at least had a visual that you drew or, or presented and sketched on and you went here, 
I sent you these as the notes and uh, your inputs are reflected here. Now I've got something that can walk the halls tangibly, move me from presentation A to decision moment B with more precise memories. Is that what you mean by uh, precision memories? Yeah, precision memories are, I remember your main distinct points that you wanted me to remember with precision. I can express them back and I can, I can attach them to the right partner vendor. As opposed to just memories are, yeah, there were some clever things I learned and I've kind of learned some things and I think I'm going to use those things. I don't remember who it was. Those are Super Bowl commercials. That was such a great commercial. I don't remember the vendor, but it was a great commercial. And then random memories are like you said something and it just spiked something and took them in a place where they went down a rabbit hole. And when they get to the moment of decision, they're like, yeah, I remember when somebody talked about this and everybody's like, what does that have to do with this? But that person's gone. They have a random memory or a just memory. And the idea is all things considered equal. I remember when ABC company walked us through this point and this point. And I didn't hear that from anybody else, or at least not in the way I heard it from them. And they can precisely attach something important to them, unique to you, and defensible from a competitive standpoint. This is uh, good stuff. No, this all- I, really, I particularly like the, uh, the framework for putting a compelling presentation together. And then I think the uh, success reps are going to like the apology part, because I would think they would get a lot of that a lot of apologies or a new business rep will call somebody up and says, yeah, I used you last year and you guys suck. (laughs) Well, right now we're studying winbacks and trying to figure out what mix of our current frameworks, either is it sort of an acquisition framework with a little apology baked in? So we created some net new test condition frameworks using some of our other winning frameworks. And we've got multiple companies involved in this study now where we actually have their losses and we're going back through email, voicemail, and then hopefully a meeting presentation and tracking who, which, which approach ignites or reignites the most opportunities. And then we're going to follow that along all the way. But our first reports are going to be like who reignited the most follow-up meetings and became actual potential new pipe. Everybody wants to know about winbacks and it's one of those areas we hadn't studied yet. So to our point, we will control the story. We will push it through those channels. We will see which one produces the best results on the other end and look for a material consistent contrast effect. When I was a salesperson in my very first sales job selling insurance, I, and it wasn't just me, other, other folks on the team observed the same thing. We loved it when we encountered people who'd had a bad experience with insurance, life insurance, because you could ask them, well, you know, why, why were you engaged with life insurance in the first place what were you trying to achieve buying something like that and folks would tell you and then you would say so what what went wrong and how did the rep handle it and how would you have liked the rep to handle it and as a consequence of that conversation the prospect ends up telling you what their core motivation was and how exactly they would like to be sold and by the end of the conversation all you have to say is well fine how about we do things properly yeah and i think you know in a in a in a net new win that's a huge opportunity. And that makes sense on every psychological level. Right now we're looking at companies that you lost, like you lost them. They were your customer, then you lost them. And now you're trying to get them back and you don't necessarily have the chance to go in and ask them, how's it going? You have to do something to provoke them to get them to remember you fondly and rethink re-engaging you. So, you know, I, I think there's, that's why we have multiple frameworks. Well, you can still be, you can still be someone more senior. Some, I know some telcos have like a special division for looking after or for rescuing high net worth customers. You could be a representative of that division say, Hey, you you know, I, I, 
I've seen a bad thing happen. Can you tell me what happened and, yeah. and use the same? Absolutely. We can't wait to at least give everybody the tastings of what this could look like. And I'm sure there will be follow-up research after that to explore the, the multiple um, angles you can, you can imagine. Awesome. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. And uh, B2Bdecisionlabs.com, all the research findings, research reports, ebooks, infographics, we, we kind of give these results away. So go there, check them out, search on your favorite challenge that you're struggling with. And, and Justin, some of the science is all explained there. So you can, you can, you can statistically significant yourself throughout. So. No, I hate science. <laughs> Tim, do you want to plug your book? Yeah, our most recent book is called The Expansion Sale. It came out just before COVID. And that was sort of prescient because it's all about how to keep and grow your existing customers. And when new acquisition sort of slowed to naught, uh, this was really helpful as people tried to retain and then upsell and they're, you know, most companies, 70 to 80% of their revenue is existing customers. And what we discovered is you can't use the same approach as you did to acquire them when you provoke them to change. Now you want to leverage the fact that you're the status quo bias and build on that. So it's a counterintuitive finding that says it's a completely different funnel and effort in the expansion side than the acquisition side. That's fascinating because so many people think it's the same sales cycle. And I always Not a one size fits all at all. In fact, it backfires. Thanks for listening to the SaaS Souls. On behalf of Justin, Jamie, KG, and myself, Pete, we thank you for listening. We ask that you give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to our newsletter, and hey, you can always buy us a beer on Patreon slash SaaS Souls. We thank you for listening. Cue the music.